I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast, giving you a flavor of all of our coverage from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu an exorcism in Paris, a challenge to the cult of Che, and how American English is influencing that of the British. But first, brain gains was our cover line this week. Technology has repeatedly promised a revolution in education, but schools have yet to be truly revamped. Our cover leader explained how the science of learning can get the best out of edtech. Backed by billionaire techies such as Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, Schools around the world are using new software to personalise learning. This could help hundreds of millions of children stuck in dismal classes. But only if EdTech boosters can resist the temptation to revive harmful ideas about how children learn. To succeed, EdTech must be at the service of teaching, not the other way around. Across the world, too many children don't reach their potential. In poor countries, only a quarter of secondary school children acquire at least a basic knowledge of maths, reading and science. Even in the mostly rich countries of the OECD, about 30% of teenagers fail to reach proficiency in at least one of these subjects. Distressingly, that's remained almost the same, despite billions being poured into IT across the past 15 years. By 2012, there was one computer for every two pupils in several rich countries. Australia had more computers than pupils. But handled poorly, devices merely serve to distract, we explained. A Portuguese study from 2010 found that schools with slow broadband and a ban on sites such as YouTube had better results than high-tech ones. One can only guess why. Indeed, it's how edtech is used that matters as well as keeping long-held yet false beliefs at bay. Personalised learning must follow the evidence on how children learn. It must not be an excuse to revive pseudo-scientific ideas such as learning styles, the theory that each child has a particular way of taking in information. Such nonsense leads to schemes like Brain Gym, an educational kinesiology programme once backed by the British government, which claimed that some pupils should stretch, bend and emit an energy yawn while doing their sums. If you'd like a mental workout, pick up a copy of this week's issue to read more. Energy yawning our way now through to the Europe section, it seems that France's president, Emmanuel Macron, has put himself into a spot of political drama. After openly causing a rift between himself and the country's armed forces, the young leader faces an early leadership test, as our article reported. On July 14th, he celebrated Bastille Day, riding in an open-top military jeep on the Champs-Élysées alongside Pierre de Villiers, the chief of the armed forces, before reviewing a parade with his guest of honour, Donald Trump. 
Five days later, the furious general quit, saying he could no longer guarantee the means to protect France and sustain its ambition. Zut alors, the root of the problem is, as so often the case, financial. General de Villiers, in office since 2014, was reappointed for another year on June 30th. He expected the military budget of 33 billion euros, that's 38 billion dollars, to be maintained, and was reassured by Mr Macron's campaign talk of raising it from 1.8% to 2% of GDP by 2025. But when campaign promises dissolved into compromise, the general's feathers were well and truly ruffled. After the general heard his budget would fall by 850 million euros, he told parliamentarians on July 12th that he would not allow himself to get screwed. And that for newcomers is a little-known military term. Moving over to our Americas section, where another army figure is coming under fire. But he's not about to defend himself. Che Guevara, the communist revolutionary, hailed from one of Argentina's main cities. But as an article explained, not everyone there holds the memory dear. Che Guevara was born in Rosario, then Argentina's second largest city, in 1928, but did not stay long. Less than a year later, his family moved away. The rest, as they say, is history, but his birthplace has not forgotten the revolutionary icon. A red banner marks the posh apartment block where he was born. A four-metre-high, that's 13-foot bronze statue, stands in Che Guevara Square. Such reverence is being challenged by some locals. Fundacion Bases, a liberal think tank based in the city, has launched a petition to persuade the city council to remove the monuments. The martyr was himself a killer, says Franco Martín López, the institute's director. Guevara was second in command to Fidel Castro, whose Cuban revolution killed more than 10,000 people. But with popular local sentiment and an attractive persona on his side, it's likely Che will survive this petition. It is unlikely to persuade the council, which has been controlled by the Socialist Party since 1989. Norberto Gagliotti, the cigar-smoking secretary of Rosario's Communist Party, suspects liberals are envious of Che's posthumous charisma. You don't see many kids walking around with Margaret Thatcher T-shirts, he observes. Well, this lady's for turning to our podcasts from this past week. The week ahead hosted a crusader of a very different ilk, Arnold Schwarzenegger of California and Terminator fame. This time his mission is self-prescribed, to tackle political gerrymandering in America. Our Lexington columnist David Rennie asked Arnie about his perseverance in changing a certain law while governing California. He told me about a press conference uh, where reporters said to him, Governor, you've now lost this four times. Didn't you get the message that the people don't want this? And Schwarzenegger told them, absolutely not. I come from the weightlifting background. I said, I don't try to lift a certain weight four times and then I give up and then we'll try again. I said, I tried, I remember the bench press, I said, I tried 10 times and I failed. And I said, the 11th time at the German powerlifting championships, I did it. I said, so, I said, you never give up. I'm sure he'll be back, but you can listen to the rest of the interview in the week ahead. 
Some more inspiring advice now from our weekly chat show, The Economist Asks, in which I had as my guest Admiral William McRaven, the former Navy SEAL who led the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. He told me how simply making my bed every morning could turn me into a successful military commander. You not only just had to make your bed, you had to make it precisely according to the SEAL standards. And, you know, the instructors would say, if you can't even make your bed right, how are you ever going to lead a large operation? So the point was, if you can't do the little things right, how will you ever learn to do the big things right? One small step for Navy SEALs, a very large one for teenagers. In Money Talks, we explored a surprising new business cropping up across France. Our European business correspondent, Adam Roberts, reported on his experience being a witness to a local exorcism. I got the chance to attend an exorcism at a friend's house in central Paris and spent the morning following the exorcist as he went through his, his process and his, displayed his tools of the trade and, and showed us how he did his business. It was a fascinating, delightful morning and obviously a lot of nonsense. So after religious purging in Tuesday's Money Talks, on Wednesday, Babbage, our science and technology show, took us back to the mythology of the early Middle Ages. New information has come to light about a prolonged freeze and famine that struck Europe around 821. And our science correspondent Matt Kaplan explained what researchers found in recently uncovered trees over in Iceland. Every single tree in this forest went down in 821. They all went down in the same direction. And that direction is opposite this gargantuan volcano known as Katla, which sits under 700 meters of ice today and periodically has blown her top and caused a huge flood of water to come down in some random direction and kill people. In this case, it killed an awful lot of trees. Heading back for another taste of our print issue now to our books and art section. Our language columnist Johnson waded into the discussion about the Americanization of British English. His view, it's being supplemented, not destroyed by the American sort. Paul Revere's ride through Concord, Massachusetts, warning that the British are coming, the British are coming, is said to have saved America's revolution from an early defeat that could have proved fatal. Much of the story, sadly for his legend, is myth. But now, many Britons suspect that British English is losing a war to the American kind. As with Revere's ride, it can be hard to winkle out the truth. Johnson concluded that America is influencing British English. Smart is increasingly describing the intelligent as much as the well-dressed. Never mind that smart first was used this way in Britain in 1571. Many Britons prefer movies to films, and fries and cookies are now appearing alongside chips and biscuits. As to whether Americanisms are replacing British words, he was in some doubt. Smart is savvy, whereas clever is swatty. Fries are thin and crispy, and cookies are American styles like chocolate chip. Movies tend to come from Hollywood. Film is still preferred for the latest gritty cinema from Europe. In other words, these Americanisms are not an impoverishment of British English, they are additions to it. To read the rest of Johnson's musing on linguistic merging, do pick up a copy of the paper or head to our website. Our final taste of the week comes from Letters to the Editor. One reader, Tudor Rickards from Manchester, wrote in about a trend in book publishing that's been bothering him, the lengthening of book titles. 
He wrote Richard Reeves' 26-word monster, Dream Hoarders, colon, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem, and What to Do About It is illustrative rather than record-breaking. Mr Ricards presumed that the fad had something to do with selection algorithms and suggested a winning title of his own. I offer to any commissioning editor my modest proposal... Book titles, colon, the long and the short of it, why subtitles matter, and what should be done to reverse the trend. And after all, Tolstoy managed war and peace in just 11 letters. That brings us to the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Any thoughts on this week's show or any of our other content, do send them through to us. Email radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>